A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 101 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page, at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. With me like that sense that George Lucas has had a vision for the sequel trilogy all along, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Now by that description, in theory, it means that I'm not actually here, right? Because he sure didn't have much of a vision beyond that. He's even said he had no vision beyond that. So... I'll just sit back and be quiet. No, I'm kidding. Not not We're on this topic. This the Nathan treatments. <laughs> this will make for an interesting topic this time around. What it basically boils down to what Star Wars comics can do right and do wrong for me. This was this is an interesting case study we're looking at this time without meaning it to be a case study. Yes. And if you hear a little hum behind both of us, it's uh getting cold as hoss out there so we've got some little lap heaters going so if that's there we apologize now if you don't hear it then uh, no harm no foul here at star wars beyond the films we ask the tough questions Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we ponder Star Wars Rebellion, issues 6 through 10, the Ahakista Gambit, by Dark Horse Comics. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we're going to give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Nathan? You know, this is an interesting one. Um, as I said kind of in our introduction there, it sort of highlights what Star Wars comics do right and what Star Wars comics do wrong. Um, it's not a terrific story. I'll give it that. Um, I will say, though, that it's not a bad story either. This is a story that is somewhere for me between decent and good. I think it it was decent on the first reading when I was reading it as the issues came out monthly. Now, I would say it's a solid enough story, but it has... Uh, the weaknesses that you would come to expect of Star Wars comics sometimes, and it's one of those that's going to show us where things go right and go wrong, as I said. Um, it's not full of characters that are at all from the films, minus Darth Vader. So if you're looking for this to be a rebellion story about the characters that we would expect to be in rebellion, Luke, Leia, and so forth, that's not the case. It's an unusual story also in that while it doesn't bring in those characters, it does bring back previous characters. There was this sense for a while that Empire and Star Wars Tales and some of these other series were sort of seeding characters into these one-shot stories or these quick little stories so that then later on they could all be drawn together into a bigger situation. Kind of like setting up things, uh, John Jackson Miller style, we would say, these days for things like he did in Knights of the Old Republic. 
So in this case, we get uh, some new characters, but also a character from the previous Ark of Rebellion, My Brother, My Enemy, a character from the Empire story, uh, The Bravery of Being Out of Range, by a different author in that case, by Jeremy Barlow in that case, and some of other some other characters based on Rob Williams' story from Star Wars Tales, Rob Williams being the writer of this, uh, uh, called Nomad, uh, which I'm kind of partial to because Nomad Chapter 1 actually appeared in Star Wars Tales number 21. It's the other big story uh, of the three stories that were included in the same issue that's got my uh, equals and opposites in it from way back in 2004. So, I don't know, it's, it's cool in that it brings together these characters from other sources rather than giving us just all new characters. It gives us a situation that makes for an intriguing story, just not one with a lot of depth. And it suffers from, and we've said this on other comics before, and I know this annoys some people at times that we talk about this, but it's part of the comic experience. I think it is poorly served by its artwork. So it's an all right story. If you have a chance to read it, check it out, read it. Um, you're not going to be wholly disappointed in it, but at the same time, it's never going to be on a top 10 list, I don't think. Yeah, you know, it, it was funny because, again, one of these that when I thought back on it, I remember, you know, this one was like, kind of like a uh, comic. But going back on the reread, it was actually a lot more, I don't know, exciting than I remembered it being. It, it had a feel like dark times where the Kukruk arc came in. Uh, you know, it felt like all of a sudden the, the story had shifted gears. Uh, we're now with a different group of people. You know, they're uh, you know, working for the rebellion. But the leader that's got them all doing their job isn't quite really telling them everything. They're not really working for the rebellion. They're actually working for a gangster of some sort. Uh, and the one main character's got a bomb in his head. And I, you know, I remember that that was intriguing. It was like, you know, the, the main bad guy was talking to the character and only he could hear him and, uh, and the way that that aspect played out and stuff. Uh, but there was a lot of background to characters in this arc that, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about the backstory of some of the characters, especially some of the uh, the fallen Jedi and the dark Jedi and what was going on with them leading up into this. I mean, there were some interesting aspects to the story that, that were just left wide open. And then there are also aspects of, you know, some of the characters have, are, you know, like kind of got a hate on for each other by the time the story is over. You know, like, I'm watching you, Miss Lowski, always watching. Uh, in that aspect, too, it was, it was interesting and I was hoping to see more, but it kind of just drops off after that. We never see it again. But when it comes to the art, uh, you know, I'm not actually having an issue with the art. There's actually quite a few single panel pages that were uh, really, really well done, really cool scenery and things like that. Um, I, I would give this one a solid number. I mean, if, if I was going to, you know, have to go from a one through ten, I would probably say it was closer to a seven, eight in the in its range uh, because it was a lot better than I thought it was for my first reread or my first reread. My first read when I first read through it, it was all singles, you know, and. As singles, I, I don't feel this really worked because it was just kind of so out in the in the left field aspect. Same thing with, with Dark Times, though. I mean, when you switch to the Kukruk arc, I mean, unless you were really caring about the character, you were following the old story, all of a sudden you were just like, uh, am I following the shift of gears? And in that format, the single issue, it, it's harder to follow. And I think that that is where this story was kind of disserved. But when you go back and you reread it as a collected story, it's a much better read. And I'm kind of actually more disappointed that they didn't continue this arc beyond. I mean, we'll see a little bit of this when we finally get to vector, but it's not as much as I remember. I mean, again, I, I haven't reread vector yet, but from what's coming off the top of my mind, I don't remember it being a powerful connection. So 
I don't know. I, as of right now, there's there's a lot of background stuff I would like to know more about that isn't provided. That's the only downside for me. I'll tell you what. Let me hit the art thing here before we go into the main discussion. That way, anyone who's annoyed by the whole art discussion, we can get it over with quick. Um, I would agree that to an extent, it's not bad artwork per se. Uh, I would say that on a scale of 1 to 10, we're looking at something that's like a 5 or a 6-ish when it comes to uh, Michael Lacombe, Lacombe, the guy that actually did the pencils for this thing, this is the same guy that did that extremely jarring oddball issue of My Brother, My Enemy, where it went from Brandon Badeau to his, and the styles just completely clashed in the middle of that arc. Uh, same guy who did, oh, he did it for uh, In the Shadows of Their Fathers Part 5, he did it for a couple stories out of Star Wars Tales and such. His art... I think in his case, it's either served or hindered by the colorist. Um, it's very rare for me to say that a Star Wars colorist has a huge impact on the way that art is portrayed within the stories. Usually I'm looking more at the definition of characters and such. But this colorist did really, it's Will Glass, really did not do a very good job of, of pushing this, at least in a way that I would have done. Because I look at this... And even in the most dynamic of scenes, even when we're looking at the Coruscant Jedi Temple during the Jedi Purge, it is just washed out colors everywhere. It's like this was done, uh, the artwork was done, and then left out in the sun for a couple of weeks before it was actually put into the comic. Everything is washed out. Um, even when you've got narration boxes that are, uh, it's basically orange box with sort of yellow inside it and the text is orange, even that looks washed out. Nothing feels really well-defined within this. Um, his way of using shadows is a little odd. There are no gradients of shadows. It's either straight up black or it's fully visible. Rarely do we see anything that's some shade of gray in between, and that leads to some parts of the story where they're in dark areas almost completely black, especially near the end of the first issue. And granted, that's an unusual choice, and perhaps they should be applauded for the idea of showing darkness as actual darkness, but it makes, again, it makes the artwork's definition seem a little bit odd, especially when they're very inconsistent with, okay, there's a lightsaber activated in the darkness. How much of a glow is that lightsaber putting off? What can you actually see? Well, see, in this shot, we don't want you to see what's behind them so the light doesn't shine on anything. But in this shot, the light shines so much we can see exactly what we want to see, but it doesn't go beyond the characters we want to see and show any of the background. It's like the light selectively chooses what it's going to show. It's not realistic lighting in any sense there. Um, and to add into the mix, we've got this character of uh, Lenara. It's this woman who's new for this story, works for Rays, and is going to be the one keeping an eye on Will Tarson. Okay? They can't seem, that is, they being either the penciler, uh, or Will Glass the colorist, I think it's the colorist, can't seem to decide what color her hair is. Because depending on the shot, her hair is either bright blonde or so dark that it's almost black. Sometimes it makes sense with the lighting that you would see it. some of it is dark and some of it is blonde, but there seems to be little rhyme or reason, again, with the lighting as to what her hair color actually is. Uh, to the point where, and this is not him doing the art, but on the cover art by Ryan Sook of issue number 7, you would be hard-pressed not to think that that's either Padme or Leia on the cover instead of Lenara. That cover there, that if that is her, yeah, that, that's a difficult sell. Yeah, so it's not so much that the penciler did a poor job, though I'm not a big fan of his style, 
but I don't think the colorist served this story well. This story, I got to wonder if it would work better if it had just been straight up black and white instead of being colored at all because there's just so much lost with the washed out and odd choices made by the colorist. Um, so to me, that probably was part of why back when I was reading this the first time around, it didn't engage me as much because I, I almost felt like I was having to fight through the artwork to get the story, which is not something you ever want to be doing when you're reading, you know, a comic book, which is a very visual medium. Well, yeah, and, and really quick to address what you said, I, I see what you're saying. For me, actually, this one, it didn't bother me at all. Um, I mean, for most part, the blonde, you know, when it's it's more darker, it's played well enough that I can pretend that it's just the lighting casting it. I mean, you know, I, I've had toe toehead blonde when I was a little kid, bright, bright blonde. Now my hair is really dark, and if I get it wet at all, it looks black. So I I, I didn't think beyond that. Um, but yeah, on the cover aspect, you know, if that if that's her on the cover, that is a hard sell. The covers were, again, back to that really cool style, and we'll hit that at the end of the issue as well, uh, of that style where it's got the little talking and stuff like that going on on it. Uh, so we'll hit that at the end of the issue as well. So that being said, um, let's hit the spoiler stuff so we can actually get into the story here. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Uh, now consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentence of All Ages, because here we go. Alright, so this is one of these stories that you probably haven't read in quite a while, so we'll do this in sort of a recap-style format here. First issue picks up for the Ahakista Gambit. It's issue number six of Rebellion. We get a quick shot of the Jedi Temple. Uh, betrayal! And Anakin uh, seeing this... Uh, this Zabrak Jedi Master on the ground basically saying, those who betray others betray only themselves, and Anakin slashes down to kill him. Um, that seemingly has little to nothing to do with the entire rest of this comic. Um, yeah, except it's just, just for us. <laughs> yeah, it's there just for the line, those who betray others betray only themselves. Lovely. We could have got that line any other way. The Anakin segment has no bearing on anything in the entire rest of the story. You would be... Hard-pressed to, to think that that is part of this story unless you happen to actually pick up the story. If someone showed this to you and said, hey, which story of, of Rebellion or Empire do you think this is from? There's no way you would guess the Ahakista Gambit. Well, well, that's almost like the accessibility angle. I mean, you know, because they open up the aspect of betrayal for the character that they're going to be giving you in the next panel. But they do it through episode three, you know, something you know of. You know of this betrayal, and you know where it's going to go for this character. So they give you that, and it's like, you know, this is the only way that it's accessible for you to understand. So here, we're just going to give you a quick clip of Anakin, and then, oh, you, you, you'll understand about betrayal and what it means to be betrayed and how you're only betraying yourself. And therefore, when we get to the end of the comic, hey, you'll understand the whole issue of the betrayal for this one main character. As if somehow that's something that the audience is too stupid to figure out without having to use the Anakin example. Um, it just, it does not make sense. It is completely, it's a non sequitur in the sense of this comic. It, it should not be there. Uh, anyway, we pick up with a flashback some years after the events of Order 66 in the Outer Rim, where the Empire, with its big old juggernaut tanks, is trying to subjugate a society, and we're getting the beginning of Will Tarson's origin story, if you want to call it that, uh, where he and his uh, older brother, Ved, and one of their other buddies 
uh, basically are trying to attack the Empire, and their way of doing it is getting close to these juggernauts and tossing explosives, which then blow up in front of the juggernauts. Only the buddy, one of the buddies, the, the guy that's with them, uh, manages to apparently take a blaster shot to his pack, which has the explosives in it, and simply blows him up, knocking Ved and Will onto the ground, um, with a juggernaut charging towards where it could crush Will. And we will come back to this flashback repeatedly, adding more information. That part of the storytelling I like, because yeah. we're not getting all the flashback at once. There's that sense of, you know, flashing back and forth. It's very much sort of a Lost style, or nowadays NBC's Dracula-style storytelling, where we get our flashbacks to give us depth. Well, and the way the flashback works, it's like each time you think, oh, oh, they all died right here. And then, you know, like the, the pack explodes and you think, oh, Ved's dead. And then the next scene, when they go back to it, it's like a little more and you're like, oh, oh, he died right there. Oh, oh, my goodness. And then we go to the next part. Oh, he's dead again. But this is the first of those panels that I was talking about that, that there's some really cool one shots in here. You know, I, I love the juggernauts. You know, my son, he's got one that he lets me have out here in the studio when he's not playing with it. That's where it sits. Uh, and. The scene, you know, Will has fallen down, and I and I love the the you know the play on Will here. It's W Y L. You know, I'm totally fine with the use of a really cool name like Will and giving it a cool twist on the spelling. That's great. You know, it's when they get you names that you can't even like. How is that said? And and you're saying it wrong for years before you go to a convention and everyone else tells you no, it wasn't spelled like that. It's, it's pronounced like this. Well. When you get to this part, Will's on the ground. He's kind of like laying over on his side, and the Juggernaut tire is coming straight for him. It's a cool scene. I really like it. I mean, there's not much going on for the Juggernaut, too much in detail. But I don't know. I really like that that image. I mean, there's something about it. It's provocative. And then it jumps to the now. A uh, really cool thing about the now, you know, he wakes up, and he's in that Raz gangster's, uh, you know, and they don't really say if Raz is like a full-on gangster or a crime lord or exactly what he is, but... There's this whole surgery center type thing going on. You know, there's a tray of tools. One of the tools looks like a little tiny lightsaber, like it's used just for surgery and stuff. And Will's got like this weird scar on his head. I don't know if that scar on his head is supposed to be the, the device that they've implanted into him or not. Uh, but there's this really cool like half circle with the uh, two lines on it. I'm assuming that that's got to be where it is. And you find out later that it is uh, uh, his companion that actually did the surgery. But right now you're kind of under the impression that it was Raz himself. And Raz is a character that right now they're not showing you much about him. You just see like, you know, his eyes and his nose up. You see his hand, his long claws. You see his teeth, his beard and his tusks, things like that. But as it progresses, he's a really weird cat. I mean, not really a cat, but more like the old, you know, 1920s vibe. Like he's got like a caterpillar vibe going on, almost like uh, Alice in Wonderland, the caterpillar. I mean, and it's robotic. It's like he's only got like an upper torso of sorts and you don't know if this is like the alien species or what because he's a total new breed of animal i mean you don't know what the heck this guy is and i think for me that was the hardest part was he was just so exotic that it was really hard to kind of buy into him at times uh you know and, and and that's an issue that i have in general with star wars whether it be the books or the comics like when you add a new creature the, the cool factor of that creature whether it be exotic or whatnot is like if they go too far in the exotic, whether it be the name or the description of the character or what it does, like you have potential to have a really cool character here with some of these aliens. And then sometimes they're, they're flops. And this guy is, I classify him as a flop. Like, I, I don't know if I would want to see a species of him where, where you have to go and visit their planet or, or whatnot. Like just keep him relegated to a one and done background character. Cause that's a weird looking species, man. Yeah. I like the fact that they're giving us basically a dream 
um, sequence here so that he you're not sure if this is actually real, if this is something that he is uh, uh, believing is happening, given the fact that Reyes seems to be the one there with the blade, and yet we find out it's Lenara who actually did the surgery to stick it in there. Um, if that is supposed to be the scar from this, he seems to have the scar before he's ever cut open to give him that explosive. So I think that's just sort of a, a character design thing that we've seen previously. Um, but, yeah, Reyes to me... He makes himself out to be a threat throughout this, the whole, I'm going to put a bomb in your head and you better do what I say kind of guy. So in that sense, he's a very cruel individual. It's like, you know, any other let's make the good guy do something bad under duress type movie that you might see or book that you might read. But Ray's himself, it's very hard to take him seriously as a threat because we don't really know much about him. That's one of the big issues that I had with this arc. Um, one of the things that Star Wars sometimes does well and sometimes does poorly, and in this case, I think, didn't do so well. The main focus is on Will Tarson. Will gets flashbacks, Will gets background, Will gets a moral quandary to be in, Will gets depth. Everybody else is surface-level characterization. Nobody else gets any measure of depth, including Rays. We know nothing about him, we know nothing by the end of this that we didn't know before, and we didn't know much from before that because he's only appeared in the pages of Rebellion anyway. Um, to me, looking at him, it's hard for me not to think of Mojo from X-Men. Absolutely. The problem for me is that I never read any of the regular universe X-Men comics that had Mojo in it. The only Mojo I know, didn't mean to rhyme there, is Mojo from Ultimate X-Men and Mojo from mostly the X-Men cartoon in the 90s from Fox. So to me, (laughs) Mojo is a joke. And looking at this guy, it's very hard to take him seriously as a villain because not only does he not get the depth, not only does it seem not to ever do anything sinister other than, hey, I'm going to put a bomb in your head, um, which is kind of his one-trick pony type deal here, but also he reminds me so much of that other character I could not take seriously that I'm kind of like, okay, um, am I supposed to be scared of this guy? Um, he's weird looking, but that's about it. Um, so I never really get to the point where I think of Ray's as this horrific villain. And in a sense, he is the villain of the piece, even though Sardoth will play that role by the end of it. Um, it, it they don't have a clearly defined villain here unless it's Ray's. And he spends so little time on screen, so to speak, uh, and is so difficult to connect with in some cases as a villain that it doesn't work until I think your second reading. My second reading, I felt more comfortable with him as the villain than I yeah. remember the first time around. But, you know, you've got to establish the character first. In this case, it establishes the character by reading it once, and then you can accept it on the second read-through. But that shouldn't be the way it works. There should well, be more definition to this character, perhaps even previously in Rebellion, unless this was meant to be more establishing of that character so he can show up more later, because he does manage to escape by the end of it. I think a lot of this was meant to set up things later in the Rebellion series, but then the yeah. Rebellion series got canceled after Vector because it pretty much peters out after this point. Yeah, well, and another thing it does is it serves, again, Will's character because it gives you more idea of what's going on with him because, you know, Raz goes, I have employed you in my underworld kingdom for many years, given you wealth. And how do you repay me? By stealing my hard-earned information and giving it to the Rebel Alliance. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's a dirty spy. And Will's on the, you know, he's strapped to this thing. He's like, just get on with it. Do it. Do it. My dear boy, we've already done it. Click. He turns the thing off. And that's when Will wakes up in his bed. And at this point, you know, he's, he's 
just wearing pants. He's got this uh, really cool looking gold uh, chest tattoo that wraps up around his neck and down one arm. Um, and, you know, I mean, honestly, I, it, I'm not ashamed to say it. he's a sexy looking black man. I mean, he's got like the uh, the the Anthony Stark goatee going on. He's got like the 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 short around the sides, but starting to dread top going up there. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was a, I was a great use of character right there. You know, a lot of people, they want diversity in their Star Wars. And, and this was a great opportunity. And and that, again, gets back to that issue of of where you say, you know, they were going somewhere with this. I had that same feeling. And that's the, the one negative is that I at the time that this gets over, you're going to want more. You, you're going to want to know more, both before this arc and after this arc. You want to know more about these characters. They do a good job in that regard. It just it's a big downer, though, that. It doesn't get picked up. Uh, one real quick thing, though. Uh, they also mentioned you know, that Raz owns this whole city, and then he starts walking around. There is a scene where someone, you know, he's look. Tarson's looking up at a picture of Raz in the background, and someone goes, hey, Tarson. And there is a picture of, and it looks very much like Jar Jar Binks. That is true. It looks like Jar Jar is in the crowd, or at least a Gungan that dresses like Jar Jar. And- he's, like, sitting there with, like, a look of, like, all my fault it is. Oh, no. I, just, I, I remember, though, you mentioned the thing about Will Tarson. I will say, I'll give credit to this artist. I think he was trying to create a strong, or the artist, the uh, the writer here, Rob Williams. I think he was trying to create a particularly strong character here with, with Will Tarson. Presumably, he is meant to eventually go on to bigger and better things, but we only see him briefly in Vector, and then that's it, because Rebellion ended. Um, he's getting a lot of depth here. He's getting the background with his brother and having to face the idea of betrayal, try to face the idea of, you know, responsibility for his actions and trying to clean up his own messages and such. Um, and except for him essentially backing down by the end of it, um, he really is built up as that strong character. On the other hand, I seem to recall the message board flurry uh, right around the time that these issues were being released because the comment was, wow, holy crap, we finally have another strong black man as a character in Star Wars, which is very cool. It's about stinking time that it's someone other than just Lando and Mace and the random character every now and then. I think that's what he was trying to do. However, by the time the arc is over, Will has essentially given up. It turns out Will is essentially a traitor uh, in some respects, even if he's being forced into it, which caused a lot of people on the message boards to hearken back to Lando. He's forced into a position by the Empire of betraying his friends, and there was a controversy, granted very short-lived, only lasted a couple of months in message board threads and such, of, really? You're going to introduce another strong black male character only for him to be betraying two? And it it did cause a little bit of consternation out there in fandom. Thankfully, short-lived. I think they were trying to do something good here as far as the diversity goes. There aren't a bunch of white male characters running around in this story as the as the primary characters that we tend to see in pretty much every other Star Wars story. Yeah. Uh, and then we get Dryball introduced here, which which was a cool-looking character. Uh, he reminds me of the captain of the Imholizul, uh, the ship you cannot pronounce from uh, Dark Times. Although, apparently, this guy actually shaves his mustache. It doesn't grow all the way out of his nose like the other captains. That scene you mentioned there, that's when we wind up finding that uh, he's met by these people who are there for rays as he's trying to escape, basically head for the, uh, uh, the docking bay and everything to get the heck out of Dodge. Uh, he is met by Lenara. And Lenara apparently has raided Padme's uh, wardrobe and picked up something akin to her Attack of the Clones, I'm going to wear all white type of outfit. Um, and as, Ray's tr- or as, as uh, Will tries to escape, Ray's activates 
little thing inside his head, the thing that could explode, and manages to incapacitate him. So he's stuck working with uh, Lenara for Rays, whether he likes it or not. And that's where you get sort of that, I mean, it's a tried and true thing that you see in sci-fi stories, uh, but it works here. You know, it works because it gives Rays a way to communicate with him, a way to keep the pressure on Will, so it's not just... Well, I'm off on this mission, and I know that if I don't come back successful, things will happen that's wrong. He knows that Rays can keep tabs on him throughout the entire mission, which adds that level of menace um, to the situation. Not as much to Rays, but adds that level of menace to the situation. Well, and did you catch the aspect of the Han renegadeness in Will? Uh, right there, before he gets the, the little, you know, they activate the chip, when Dryball comes up and he starts doing his, his threatening thing, you know, he, he's... For all intents and purposes here, Dryball is Greedo. He goes, I don't think he wants to see Raz, boys. He might need some convincing. Tarson, are you listening to me? I'm threatening you, you idiot. Tarson, you ignorant Minoc. And he's looking at the girl, you know, and he's like, this is ridiculous. Okay, boys, take him in. I'm going to enjoy this. And Tarson pulls out his little blaster, and he's like, yeah, me too. And he just zaps all the guys there, and that's when he takes off running. I mean, classic Han Solo, you know, pre-edit. And a very interesting gun that somehow is able to fire a bunch of random lightning bolt-looking things that managed to strike everybody who's up against him, except, of course, Lenara, who at that point, um, I'm assuming, is standing off to the side. Um, but that finally brings us to Ahakista. Turns out the Ahakista Gambit is named for the planet on which most of the story takes place. Ahagita, Ahagita, yeah, Ahakista, there you go, um, is a planet. It's kind of like a, a shibboleth here. You must be able to say the name correctly to be able to be thought of as a fan of Rebellion, apparently. Um, so, turns out that Ahakista, basically the Empire has come in, they've set up this data hub, as we learned throughout the story, they set up this data hub place, because all this intelligence coming in that's supposed to coordinate the Imperial War Machine needs to have these massive computer systems in order to keep everything sorted out. And instead of putting it on Coruscant and making that a target, they put it on this backwater world where no one would think to look for it, and that's the so-called hub. But in order to protect the hub and set up things the way the Empire wants, they came in and basically took the upper class of society and gave them all kinds of benefits and basically propped them up, raised them up over everyone else, which in this formerly democratic society has led to out-and-out -out rebellion. So you've got essentially a civil war that's brewing under the surface on Ahakista uh, amidst the broader conflict between the Rebel Alliance and the Empire here. And we start out with a couple of these upper-class people um, who I'm assuming we were meant to not like. At first, you're like, oh, they're just the uh, local leaders. Uh, they are touring the town. And you think, wow, they're actually touring the town. They're sort of slumming it in their eyes. But they're out amongst the people. This must mean that these are good guys. Until one of them, uh, when a child comes, you know, basically asking for a handout, basically turns away and says, well, you know, that's, that's the gift. The gift of an important lesson learned. In this harsh galaxy, one must take responsibility for improving one's own situation. Help will not come from outside. So the starving child doesn't get anything from him as he walks away. And then, boom, the vehicle that the two uh, councilmen are trying to get into, or the councilman and the other, um, are trying to get into, explodes. And we learn that Dunlin, sort of the leader of the local resistance, who is also seemingly not a standard Star Wars white male. Um, he actually looks like an actor from somewhere, him and his buddy, and I cannot place it. I'm just like, what? it's got to be somebody. Like, they've taken a likeness of somebody here because it looks way too familiar. That I don't know. That, I, that I've never been able to place. Um, but we find that they're the ones who are sort of leading this 
uh, rebel insurgency against the local leaders, and they're being observed by the person we will find as one of the villains of the piece, um, a man or a, an Iktochi, uh, that is, uh, oh gosh, what is his name? Um, Saisi Tin's race, um, this Iktochi oh, named Sardoth, who is the, the owner of a local uh, casino. So he's looking out over this and basically just knows that the Empire is not going to stand for a civil war given what, he, what they've had hidden there, given the hub being there. And he's sort of looking for his role to play in all of this. We will find that he is part of Raze's plot as we go further along within the story. But we're introduced to Ahakista and its civil conflict, I think, in a way that, that works. We're used to the idea this is written in 2007. It's six years after 9-11. Terrorism is certainly at the forefront of our mind. We're heading slowly but surely at that point towards a presidential election in which terrorism becomes a major role um, in the, the vast debate over it, the Bush or not Bush, uh, the McCain-Obama election leading out of Bush's eight years in office. And, yeah, the idea of, hey, here's a terrorist who blows up a vehicle, um, but this is someone who's maybe standing up against the establishment as we got out of Star Wars with the Rebel Alliance, always standing up against the Empire. That, I think, works. It just takes a very few pages to set up the central conflict on Ahakista and even the fact that the Empire's got something established there. I think that was played very well and very economically in this comic. It's You get in, you get what you need, you don't take up a ton of pages, you move on, we know what's going on on the planet. That was very well done. Yeah, I mean, uh, D Dunlin... Uh, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for what you made me do. So you get the sense that the terrorist group here is reluctant to do any kind of killing. Uh, so, you know, you got like, oh, wow, he's got a heart of gold. I, f I kind of feel for him. I just I don't know if I'm supposed to yet or not. Um, and then, of course, you know, Sardoth, he's got a uh, a Camoan with him, a Caminoan, however I'm going to say it, uh, Erla. And again, it's like, I'm like, oh, you know, what's her backstory? And you know, I'm curious as to why she's there. But she's like, another explosion, Sardoth. And he's just gazing out the window. Hmm. It's really started, hasn't it? The good times are over, Erla. The Empire won't stand for the Civil War. Not when it jeopardizes what they've hidden here. And that, when he says, not when it jeopardizes what they've hidden here, it's another one of those one panels that I was talking about that are just really cool. You know, I mean, they're not like, like some of the space battles that I absolutely love, like popping, but they're just really cool, iconic moments. I mean, this one, it's got a temple, the, the hub itself behind him, and it kind of looks like the uh, Jedi temple on, uh, on Yavin four. And there's a shuttle coming down and they're just looking out the window. I, I just, I really like the way it's done. I like the styling of everything on that. It, it's again, one of those really cool one shots that I really, I get a kick out of it. And then of course we go back to, uh, you know, will we very briefly get information about the mission itself. We see, uh, uh, Will flying through space with Lainara, and they're on the way to recruit a team, because in yet another flashback, albeit a more recent flashback, we learn that Ray's basically is forcing him to infiltrate the hub. Um, they're going on a mission where they've got to gather up a team to break in and do all these things that Lainara knows they're supposed to do, but that Will at this point doesn't. He's basically on a need-to-know basis, and he doesn't need to know. Um, and the idea is that it's basically a suicide mission. So he doesn't care who Ray's pull or who uh, Will pulls together because he doesn't expect any of them to survive anyway. For Will's part, he may be a rebel agent, but now that he's been outed, essentially, because remember back in My Brother, My Enemy, this was the guy who helped make sure that message from Tank got to Luke, but in doing so, that blew his cover, which is how Ray's found him in the first place, why he wanted to escape, why Ray's has turned on him and stuck the bomb in his head and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Will now doesn't want to bring any other rebel agents into the mix 
to possibly compromise them. Uh, I find it interesting that he says, this is my mess. I won't expose any active alliance agents to it. And you see uh, Ray's speaking to him through the implant or whatever, say, shame. Ray's would have liked to expose more. But Will's idea basically is that the team he's going to build together will be made up of, as he calls it, inactives. The ones the rebellion doesn't want anymore. Which would have been awesome at some point in the story to know why the rebellion didn't want them anymore. But instead, yeah. we get this cool concept of him sort of pulling the Ocean's Eleven or the Han in Scoundrels thing, recruiting a Wait, crew what? of ne'er-do-wells to carry out this mission with the idea that they're all ones that the rebellion doesn't want and never, ever bothers to tell us why. Uh, I'm, again, I'm hoping that was meant to be something to be explained in later stories or perhaps in the pages of some other comic series, um, even if just mentioned. But here... It's that whole paper-thin depth to anybody but Will Tarson thing going on. We get that there's some history, it seems like, between Lenara and Will because they've worked together for years. Um, okay, doing what? How close are they? What do they know about each other? What connection has there been? Has there been a romantic involvement? We get nothing. The members yeah. of this team, we get nothing throughout. And that's a thing that Star Wars comics sometimes do that annoys me. Mm -hmm. I said this would be an example of good and bad. Um, one of the things they managed to do, I mean, it's a great thing here that they're going to be able to pull characters from other stories together into this one. That's something that's great with Star Wars' vast library of materials out there. The Star Wars can lay out characters in some stories and bring them together into an unexpected situation, making use of previously existing characters instead of ones we've never heard of before. That's great. But they often get so wrapped up in either one character or so wrapped up in the plot of a story that they don't bother to give us any depth to the characters of the story. I would say that in this story, Will Tarson gets depth along the lines of, say, a Luke or a Han in A New Hope. Every other character gets the depth of, say, Chewbacca <laughs> in A New Hope. They're there. You know they play an important role. The only way you really care for them is through other characters and their interactions with them. Like, you know, I sort of care what's going to happen to Will, and Will seems to be on the same team or you know, acquainted with these people, so I guess I should probably care. Just like in A New Hope, well, Chewbacca's there, we don't really know much about him, but we care about Han, and since we care about Han, we should care about Chewbacca. Chewbacca doesn't get that kind of depth in A New Hope. It's not until we see him quite a bit later uh, in the other films that he gets a little more depth, and then the EU gives him tons more depth, and strangely, the holiday special. But this is that Chewbacca level of A New Hope characterization given to everyone on that team. Starting out with the first one that they go to recruit. Uh, apparently yeah. a speaking master... Speaking of Chewbacca. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Man's Chewbacca. best friend. Well, I was thinking this uh, more of sort of a dog or a schnauzer. Uh, my mm. mom used to have an old Scotty. schnauzer. A schnauzer turned into a, uh, a very small uh, Ewok-sized character. Um, sort of reminds me of a ranit, but he's not a ranit. They've never given this guy a species, apparently. Um, I actually, when I look at him, my first instinct is Master Splinter. <laughs> out of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But apparently, uh, Bako Parr, who is a new character for this arc, just like Lenara is, uh, Bako Parr is a fallen-down drunk, but he's also a master lockpicker. He's a safe cracker. So they basically just abduct his butt and take him on the mission, not really giving him a choice in the matter. Um, yeah, I get a feeling like there's a, a kind of funny friendship there. Because of the way Will goes about it, you know, Lenar sees behind him, someone's broke in. Uh-huh, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And then he's laying out, like, dead. Someone's killed him. You'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> 
and they get the great moment there as they're as they're landing on the planet to find their next uh, their next team member. Um, they land on the planet amid a rainstorm and such, and Bako comes out uh, with his his uh, uh, raincoat on essentially. Uh, it says, "I really hate you, Tarson." And while I may not know you, girly, I'm fairly certain I hate you too. Bako's a funny character. He's the comic yeah. relief of this story, and he does it well. Um, you never get the sense that he's about to necessarily run away. He feels like he's stuck in the situation, but at the same time, you feel like the character doesn't really want to be there, and he's 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 fine. Like he basically he knows they're not going to kill him or beat him up for anything that he says because they need him. So he can mouth off as much as he likes. And in the end, he gets one of those Bomo Green Bart going up against the pirates to protect the others types moments where it's like, you know, leave me behind to, you know, to take out some stormtroopers and help the others make it through. So he's he's a character that for what little characterization we get of him is a fun character. We have no depth to his background. We don't know why he's not with the rebellion anymore. Um, we don't know where he got his skills. We don't know what his connection is to Tarson or anything else. But on a surface level, he's a smart mouth, funny character, and a nice addition to the team. Now it's the next character that I was the most interested in. I mean, they're the backstory especially. I really want to know what led to this guy. Uh Will goes, he used to train the rebellion spies here. For a while at least. What happened? People died. Rumor says the guy killed some dark Jedi. I'm like, whoa! And, and of course, you know, we will find that this character, in fact, does carry a red lightsaber around. But the background behind him and, and why there are all these statues of apparently his wife and child or his uh, lover and child. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Is there anything out there about this guy before this? Because Dude, it, it almost seems like there was. That's Nomad. This is Dark this Anil. Is Nomad? This is Dark Anil from Nomad. Not that you would really know it because... This falls into the one of the other things that drives me nuts about Star Wars comics these days. One of the things that it does wrong when it's doing stuff right. It is Star Wars comics are great, outside of Star Wars Volume 2 by Brian Wood, at bringing in references to events and situations in other things. I love, for instance, in the X-Wing series, they managed to bring in the Battle at Dara 4 from the Empire Strikes Back radio drama. Great mm -hmm. at connecting things together. And in this case, one of the characters that they bring in to be part of this team, the one that we have met before other than Will, is Dark Anil. Now, if you're not familiar with Dark Anil, he was in uh, Star Wars Tales numbers 21 through 24. Rob Williams, in one of his first Star Wars stories, but not his first, he'd done a story earlier in Tales, I think it was number 17. Um, Dark Anil basically is this character who you think is a Jedi when we first meet him. And we get this serialized four-part story where he's in different situations on different planets, working his way toward catching up with an individual named Lycan. Turns out that there was essentially a Jedi transporting a prisoner who presumably was Sith or Sith-influenced named Lycan. Uh, Lycan has lost his memory due to a crash, except Lycan still instinctively uses the dark side, he's still very vindictive and evil, and he still carries a red lightsaber. Uh, as a mercenary, Dark Anil, uh, on his home planet, Dark Anil finds this crashed ship, speaks with the Jedi who looks a lot like Lobo from DC Comics, frankly, gets the Jedi's lightsaber, and is told there's a there's a, an escaped prisoner named Lycan. Um, you need to try to stop him, and by the time he heads back home, based on a warning from the Jedi, he says, you'll go to your son, turns out that Lycan has already killed his wife and child. So he just so he burns down the home to, and buries them and heads out on this long hunt to kill Lycan using his mercenary skills and this lightsaber that makes people think for a while that he is a Jedi. 
until finally we find out in the last part of it that he's not a Jedi. We get the backstory of why he's after Lycan. He confronts Lycan and winds up basically bringing a, a cave down on top of Lycan's head, killing him. Burying him, it seems, with the lightsaber, but apparently not. Um, I guess we'll see the lightsaber is being carried here by Dark Anil. Um, but Darka manages to escape, and by the end of that story, we've got the sense. In fact, I can uh, quote it for you here. Um, he's, he brings it all down, and we see at that point, Lycan is holding the green lightsaber that Darka Nil got from the Jedi, and, because he's kicked Darka's butt and gotten it, and he's carrying his own curved hilt red lightsaber. Uh, Darkus had set up mines. It brings down the roof on top of them. Darkanil runs out and escapes. We get no sense whatsoever he was able to recover either of the lightsabers, though presumably he must go back and get them. But we get a coda back to the first part of that story. He says, There are places in the galaxy that are grand and important. The majority of us, we never see those places, but we have our own stories. And sometimes, even when they seem blackened and burnt, when they appear to hold no light, hope, or chance of redemption, when there appears to be no possible outcome but an ending, they continue. Lycan said to me, men are not driven by altruism. I'll prove him wrong. He has found a purpose in life because as the story progressed, he was repeatedly helping people along the way until that became almost more important than his mission. His overriding goal was to track down Lycan, but he allows himself to fall behind in doing that to help other people. He comes out a changed man who should, in theory, be free of his demons at this point. Only now we find, thanks to this story, that in the intervening about 32, 33 years or so, because this is set in the months after, attack, uh, after The Phantom Menace, and then this story is set about nine months after the events of A New Hope, we find, oh, he became a member of the Rebel Alliance eventually, he trained some of their spies, something happened and people died, and now he seems to have given up, and apparently he's filling this home of his, where the lights are perpetually off, it seems like, mm. with... The carvings, basically, of his wife's head and his son's head. And he's essentially sort of balled himself up into this cave, sort of made himself a hermit in that sense. Um, we, of course, don't know this at the end of that issue, only that, uh-oh, you know, the lights have gone out, and here's a man standing there with a red lightsaber. A great moment also there for Baco, because, you know, she's like, She's like, oh, a woman and a boy. These must have taken years to complete. You know, kind of throwing that year aspect word right there. Uh, that's nice. That's very nice. I mean, I like art as much as the next person, but this guy's insane, isn't he? And then all the lights shut off, and he's like, um, I, I can't speak for everyone here, but personally, I'd like to apologize for the previous insane comment. <laughs> and then the lightsaber lights up, and you know, he's got his hands up. I, I just, again, I love, I love that they throw characters in here. This, you know, when he went and got the uh, inactives, that's when it started to feel like Wraith Squadron for me. Yeah, that or like a, a caper-type tale. Um, we move into the next issue. We find, after a quick scuffle, that yes, this is Dark Anil. He removes his, basically what looks like sort of a, a ninja-style mask to reveal Dark Anil underneath. Very scarred. Not a guy uh, who seems like he's in his right mind entirely, though we never will find out why, unfortunately. Um, and that moves the action back to Ahakista, where one of the uh, council beings on Ahakista basically is asking someone, we will find out later it is Darth Vader, to take care of the rebellion problem, the local rebellion, on the planet. Please take them out. Please deal with them, essentially. I want Dunlin, the leader, dead. Um, we then find that, of course, Vader takes a very overboard approach 
and we meet Dunlin and his little buddy, the one who will essentially be his Judas later on, a character named Aster, and uh, they're awoken by the Empire, but it's not the Empire breaking in to find Dunlin. They have no idea where Dunlin is. Instead, basically the Empire is just sending AT-ATs throughout the city, just stomping on buildings, just yeah. making a message to, to them about the rebellion, which I thought was, you know, typical Imperial. It I think it worked better than simply sending the Empire to break into his home and try to get to Dunlin or something, but to send them in and just indiscriminately start killing and, and bashing down buildings as a way of saying, you all better straighten up. It reminds me very much of like the Mongols. The Mongols would let you keep your original culture as long as you didn't rise up. As soon as you started trouble, the Mongols would come in and crush you. That's the, the basis of the whole Pax Mongolica thing um, for such a long time. So that, again, it, it's, it's working. The storytelling is working. So I don't think it's a bad comic. It's just the art that kicks me out of it. I think this is something oh. that if you read it at once, you're going to find a solid story, even if it's not one that's you know super top tier because of the lack of depth to a lot of the characters. Well, here's a moment here in this panel. I, I liked with Bolar, especially, you know, when he when he's pointing down at Dunlin and he's like, I want him dead. The the anger and look on him. But then when, you know, and of course you don't know it's Vader, although they should have put in like a kind of sound in the midst of it. So you'd be like, oh, oh, it's Vader. But he's like, you give me an order, Bular? Uh, no, I merely suggest. But the look on the character's face, the way he's drawn, the way it's kind of like he even looks like he's kind of been slapped, like like the upper part of his torso is kind of leaning back, but the guffaw, like his jaw is hanging over. He's like, oh, what? And then the next part, you know, Vader keeps talking, you know, but the look, like at this point, he's closed his mouth, his eyes are wide, his nose is tipped back. He looks like he's about to either cry or swallow, like in total panic and then when we get to to dunlin and his friend uh there's a moment there when they when they scream run the as you called him as uh, judas there's just a great picture there he kind of looks like a very shocked jesus christ i think that they were trying to make a comparison with a sort of the judas character i mean even to the point of the way he gets paid later on it almost looks like the 30 pieces of silver type of connection and, and then right after they have that that look on his face, you get the foot of the ATAT busting through Dunlin. He's on his back, and the other guy's got his hands kind of up. Again, one of those they're all single shots. Like there's no two page spreads with it all. It's only just a one page spread. But again, they do a really good job of of doing that, and I I really like it. Like now we're you know I think we're averaging about two per comic, and I like that. It's really cool because it you know it gives you this I don't know from somebody who aspires to be an artist like these are great panels that you know you could photocopy or you know buy a second comic and cut it out and put it in a frame I don't know, but I liked it. I thought it was cool, and I like the fact that they do those little single panels that take up the entire page. So Darka basically refuses to join them until just sort of that stereotypical. Um, gee, what would your wife have wanted type of moment where Lenara picks up one of the the heads from one of those sculptures and basically says, uh, would she have wanted you to live like this? Until he finally decides, you know what, I'm going to you know, join because I want to you know, cause some hurt to someone again. Uh, but at least we know that he, uh, Darkenil was not a character who was dumb and simply all muscle back in Nomad. And thankfully he's not dumb and all muscle here. He doesn't get much depth here and you would not have known where he's coming from but here's a character who, um, basically, he's a, he's distrustful of Will. And I realized I, I started my comment earlier and then got sidetracked or whatever. Um, what I was trying to say that they do that's so good yet so bad. Good, yes, they bring this character in. This is the character from Nomad. Okay, wonderful. What they do poorly, 
they don't tell you where these characters come from. If this was the old Marvel comics, or even, I mean, I don't read a lot of Marvel comics these days, but when I was reading the old Transformer stuff, or the G.I. Joe stuff from Marvel back in the day, or reading the old Star Wars stuff from Marvel, if there was an event that is referenced from some other story, there'll be a little box in the corner, a little asterisk saying where this comes from. Like, mm -hmm. this is something that would have made sense, perhaps, there's a crew, meet Dark Anil, asterisk, little box down at the bottom, last seen in Star Wars Tales number 24. Absolutely. Star Wars comics don't ever do that really anymore. They don't bother to tell you where anything comes from. Instead, what we wind up with is just this assumption, well, if they don't know where the character comes from, they can look it up online or whatever. So in this case, it's like Dark Anil. You were just saying you weren't sure where Dark Anil came from. You didn't realize he was from Nomad. Without the Nomad background, this character has virtually no depth. It is all and paper I wanted thin. To know more. I'm like, the only thing I knew is he he wore a costume that looks like kick-ass from the movie, and I'm like, dude, this guy is awesome, and, and he's killed a dark Jedi? What? But we don't get any background with that unless you realize this is the character from Star Wars Tales. There's no comment telling you where he comes from. Nothing. Um, and that is one of the biggest failings I see in Star Wars comic storytelling. Um, it wouldn't make sense to put a bunch of footnotes in a Star Wars novel, of course. Fine. Whatever. Um... But in comics, it's sort of an accepted thing that you put in little references like that as a way to keep people connected things. And in this case, it's not just one series, and we're trying to make sure people know which issue of that series a character's from. This is a series out of many, many, many series, and we need to know where his story comes in relative to other comic series like Star Wars Tales. That, to me, it's, it, it's boggling to my mind why they wouldn't do that. I'm guessing it's just so it doesn't clutter things up with these references. But seriously, a story like this needs those type of references. There should be something in this comic, something in one of these issues that tells us, oh yeah, Dark Anil is from the pages of Star Wars Tales in that Nomad story. But it's not there at all. Um, a serious flaw in this story and its storytelling. Because you're not going to get depth with them here. It's one of those characters we need depth from another source to really care about. It's like watching Revenge of the Sith after having read Matthew Stover's novelization. The characters and their actions will have much more depth having read the book. Well, if you'd read Nomad, this character, Dark Anil, has some depth to him. But none of it is added within this tale. Or at least very little of it is. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it, he either comes off as paper thin or the, or the character development is paper thin in this case. Either way... They desperately need to be using these little reference items, and heck, maybe forcing the the reader or the forcing the writer to have to educate the reader in that way would cause less continuity foul ups because it would mean that writers would have to know where the hell what they're writing is coming from. I'm looking at you, Brian Wood. Uh, anyway, so they get off the planet. Uh, Darka is not trusting Will, but he's at least part of the team. So uh, Will and uh, Bako. Bako, Bakos make baking things better. Isn't that the old slogan? Uh, and Bacon Bits Boy, uh, the Dog Man, Splinter, and Lenara and Will, they're all on the ship. They're heading for Akista, uh, only to find that when they get there, um, the Empire is already there. It's the, the idea was it was supposed to be a quiet little place, and yet here's a bunch of Star Destroyers and TIE Fighters and such in orbit. Fortunately, uh, as part of this, you know, this whole process of preparing for the job, um, uh, Ray's knows what the code is, the, the authorization code is, to get through the Imperial blockade. He lets them sweat for a minute, thinking they're going to be blasted out of the sky, to the point where Will has another flashback to his brother saving him from that juggernaut tank, um, until finally Ray's tells Will in his head what the landing code is. 
and it gives the landing code so they can make it down to the surface. You get this sense that Raze is just screwing with him, you know, because, hey, you may be doing a job for me, and I may have complete control over you with this whole implant that could blow your head up, but you pissed me off. You betrayed me, so I'm going to screw with you every chance that I get. Um, and they wind up heading down towards uh, the casino where we finally bring them face-to-face with Sardoth and his aide. What's interesting, though, is all the space scenes with the TIE Fighters and the and the Star Destroyers are beautifully drawn. Very gorgeous. The TIE Fighters, the detail is incredible. But when they come around Will's ship, Will's ship is, is like you said at the beginning with Coruscant, it, it, it's very watered down. There is n- the, the lack of depth to it in comparison to the TIE Fighters flying up and shooting at it is almost ridiculous. Uh, and, and I didn't even realize that my first read through till just now, but it, it is kind of it's kind of weird because, you know, you're looking at a rectangular panel that runs across the page and on the left side, the TIE fighters are just beautifully crisp and they're, and they're even far away. And yet you can see the details in the lines of the ships. And then the other ship is closer to you. And yet there is zero detail. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. Uh, If you're looking on on the page that uh, ends with, basically there's a shot of Lenara having taken her jacket off, sort of leaning forward. And you get the interesting way that they did the shading on her that again, kind of changes the hair color and whatnot on that page. He's talking about the two, Panels right above that, the TIE Fighters look like they used photo references to do it, and the hero's ship, if you want to call them the heroes, the Mary Band's ship, looks like it was drawn by a child. It really does look like it was drawn by a child. There is no definition to it. Uh, they, they don't look like they are part of the same panel at all. And when you get to the flashback, th- this is what I was saying, how you know you, you think V died already, and then at this point you see, oh, he didn't die when that guy's blast comes, because he's who saves Will. And then, of course, you know, he throws the pack underneath the tire and then he covers Will and then it blows up and you're like, oh, he died again. I, I like the way that, that that progression of the flashback, it's like you, the reader, you think you watch V die. Like by the time the comic's over, you thought he died like three times. You're like, wow, when is this guy ever going to die? Like you get that sense of heroism, you know, from Will's point of view as to who V is. But it also gets you that aspect of, of how Will kind of looks at himself like a failure. You know, like he'll never live up to his brother as a hero. And I just realized we're almost at an hour already. So let's, I'm going to try to zip along this, the summary stuff. Uh, let's see. So they meet up with Sardoth, and Sardoth is their contact, essentially. Um, Lenara has a case, essentially a Star Wars briefcase. To, that, that seemingly changes size. It's real big when it's in Lenara's hands. It's incredibly tiny when it is then in Sardoth's hands, apparently. That's because he um, opened it and looked inside. I would... Well, I mean, even then, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you've got basically the case with the little light on it. So they show him holding it in his hands. He's able to fit his entire hand over more than half the width of that entire case. And she's holding it so that her hand barely takes up like a third of it. She's holding it, it looks like a briefcase size. In his hands, it looks like it's iPad size, to put it mildly. Um, in any event, um, he's the one who knows what's needed, so he looks inside, realizes, you know, what his next step is going to be. And we wait for our characters after they argue a little bit. After Lenara looks like she's going to say, screw it, you know, I'm walking away. You know, you're, you know, I-, I did my part of the job. I delivered you here. I delivered the package to Sardoth, so screw you. I'm out of here. Although she's going to have a change of heart and wind up joining them in a very paper-thin, characterized sort of way that never really gets much of a reason for why she sticks around. Um, we get a brief moment where Dark Anil meets with Sardoth and talks to him a little bit because Sardoth that, wanted to that, talk to him. That scene, okay, this scene promises so much, and this is where I start to get irritated because, okay, when when the Kamoan shows up, she's like, my master, Sardoth, wants to know if you would care to join him for a drink. He wishes to. 
discuss something with you. And then when he shows up, you know, he's like, you wanted to talk? I did. Yes, I was interested to see that you carry a lightsaber. A rarity in these times. So tell me. And it's like this whole, like, I don't know if he goes into the back room or if a secret panel opens up. I think he goes into a back room. Are you Jedi? He says as he points. And in the back, it's like a weapons room just full of lightsaber hilts. You know, like like just an insane amount. And he's holding one. And he goes, I have met Jedi before, you see. And that is it. Like, like the next time we jump to these guys, this whole meaning, this whole conversation, everything is just left behind. And I was so ticked off by that because I wanted to know more about why he had all these lightsabers and what these two talked about. But, but we get that. We get that in the yeah, last couple of do, issues. But we, but we don't get, like, I don't know. It, to me, it's like this would have been the moment where they would have either had their fight. Like, how did he get out of that room? Like, how did he answer that question? I mean... I don't know. To me, it was like that. That was such a loaded question. Are you Jedi? That I don't know. Or, see, or that could have been the moment to to have said, "Hey, you know, I did this thing back in this other comic." Like that. That was a great moment where they missed something there for me. Right. I, I think this is assuming that you, as the reader, have already read Nomad, and you know he's not actually a Jedi. He's just carrying it, and you know about his past with Lycan and everything. Because they assume that later in this story too, that you've read Nomad and you know who the hell Darkenil is. But this story tells you nothing. So this is setting up their later confrontation, the idea that, you know, uh, Sardoth has known Jedi, has this lightsaber collection, so who the heck is he? And, oh, look, there's Dark Anil pretending to be a Jedi or, or being thought of as a Jedi because he's carrying a lightsaber. You know, what's going to happen between those two? It sets up that anticipation. But, again, if you don't know who Dark Anil is, this yeah, scene has no weight. I, I thought Dark Anil was putting out some serious hate, okay? that was I, I was assuming he was a Force user because they never actually say that he wasn't until you get towards the very end. And even then, they don't say he isn't. You just figure it out because Vader doesn't seem to care about him. But then you go to the actual, you know, the, the base where the uh, hub is, and one of the sergeant guys is something wrong, and you see Vader for the first time, and he goes, hmm, perhaps. And I was thinking, okay, obviously, whatever's going on in this conversation, whatever Dark is going to say... It's what's caused Vader to feel them. I mean, obviously, the reality there is that it's the other guy, Sardoth, that's putting out this vibe. But, yeah, they don't tell you. So it leaves quite a bit to, to imagine. And then, you know, when you get to the next one, it jumps so far forward. I really wanted to know where we were going next. And then it, it leaps. But the way it leaps, again, left me confused because it's the shuttle coming down. And, and it goes, Pyramid 1, Lord Vader requests permission to land. And then... The planet says permission granted. The shuttle keeps coming down, and before it lands, it gets blown up, and Vader's there. It's like, why would Vader request permission to land if he's not on the shuttle? Like that—that that threw me so off that I literally spent a good five minutes rereading this, going, "Are they like, are they pretending the Vader was on the shuttle? Like, what? what?" And I mean, then I go back to that last comic, and I'm just like, "Wow, it is such, you know." What happened? Is there a whole comic missing here? Like, it jumped so much that it really threw me off. And that was one of the things that really, really irked me. And I think going back, uh, you know, to where I first read it as singles, that was one of the things that made me think this series sucks. Because it jumped from, you know, I was really into the ending, and then all of a sudden it was like, wait, what we do? We Did we restart the story over? Did I miss something? Did something happen in another comic? I was so lost and out to see a drift. Yeah, that particular short, short segment, it's cool in that, you have an Imperial shuttle coming down, it gets blasted by a missile that's launched from the ground, and it crashes. And Vader's the one who's sitting, standing there witnessing it, and he's got that impassive look because, of course, without him saying anything, all we see is his helmet. So you kind of have the, really, kind of thing going on for Vader. At least that's the, the attitude it, it gives me just looking at the, the uh, sequence there. But yeah, you're right, it says, left it completely silent. Yeah, Pyramid 1, Lord Vader requests permission to land. 
So is Vader basically telling them they need to land, so Vader is requesting it on their behalf and they're relaying that? Is it that they wanted to make it look like Vader was on the shuttle so that that would draw out the terrorists on the ground to blast the shuttle? Vader's already on the planet. That dialogue in that, I mean, the scene itself is very cool. The dialogue in the scene makes little to no sense whatsoever. At Did least Palpatine tell because him he was it never gets this explained. Planet and he couldn't leave? <laughs> Please let and me off, sir. We pick up from there, and our team is on their way to the next part of their mission. They're all in basically disguise, walking through the streets. Uh, Lenara has decided to join them, but we have no explanation of why she decides to stick along with them when the last issue she said, screw it, she was out of there. But they wind up meeting with an Imperial officer who's supposed to help them with the hub. Because to get into the hub, basically to set this up, their mission is that they've got this little droid uh, transmitting device, this little spider-looking thing, uh, kind of like the spiders that go after uh, Tom Cruise's character in Minority Report. And the idea is that they need to get inside the hub's uh, computer room, their server room, so to speak, release that thing, and it'll start gathering information and transmitting that information out to Ray's so he can have access to all this, you know, it, all this imperial information, given the fact that he is sort of an information broker himself. It's how he makes his fortune. Um, to get inside, though, there's an incredibly difficult lock to pick, which is where Bako's going to come in. Um, along with making, you know, baked potatoes taste much better. Um, and then you've also got this shielding, this sort of electronic shielding that's over it, and someone needs to shut down that that shielding. And to do that, their goal is to use this Imperial woman who's going to help them. Now, this is another character we've met before, but they don't bother to give us any detail about it. Um, it is the character of Rasha Bex. Um, Rasha Bex who looks nothing like the last time we saw her, because it's a different artist, appeared back in Empire Number no. 23, the one-shot Boshek story by Jeremy Barlow, uh, with art by uh, Brandon Bando, if I'm saying that correctly. She was basically an Imperial who Boshek thought was a rebel, only to wind up at the end. She reveals her Imperial ties, and Boshek gets captured. And the idea here is that you know they're supposed to help her in a way that will possibly make it so that later on she'll be able to get to Boshek uh, and be with him again, because they were sort of falling for each other in the story, um, so she's helping them now. But we get very little of that. There's a brief, brief comment about Boshek at one point, that she needs to help because of Boshek. But otherwise, we get into that background. There's no little box that says, last time we saw her and Boshek was back in Empire number 23, the bravery of being out of range, or anything like that. It's just, hey, here's Rasha Bex. Hopefully you'll realize that's a familiar name, and look up where she came from. Uh, it was the Boshek that caught me. I was like, oh, okay, I recognize that name. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's it's not a, it, it's, it's a story that does a great job of pulling together characters from previous stuff, from Empire, from Tales, from earlier in Rebellion, um, but it is hindered by the, again, the lack of characterization given to these characters beyond the paper-thin level, and the fact that even the characters that have greater depth because they appeared in previous stories, the audience, especially a new reader or someone who isn't reading everything, especially the, the Star Wars Tales comics, because they were six bucks each, um, they're not going to know where these characters are coming from. Uh, the, the depth of those characters and why they're there is lost. It'd be like, you know, trying to watch, gosh, I don't know, trying to pick up with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. right now uh, on current episodes without having seen the first couple and knowing where everything came from. In a sense, this story, the Hakista Gamut, is in many ways uh, this era's Avengers movie. 
It's mm -hmm. we've laid out the foundations in Tales, in Rebellion, and in Empire for these characters. Now we draw them all together in a superstar jam-packed story, which I thought was very cool at the time. The fact that all these characters are showing up again, maybe it feels like there's a purpose to them being in there, and that this is where Rebellion's really going to get going with all these original characters that have been created over the years and give us stories focusing on them instead of our main heroes so that our main heroes can have time to actually use the restroom during this time period that's already so chock full of stories. Instead, mm -hmm. we get something that somewhat does that, but leaves out crucial information for any reader who's not very keen-eyed or reading a little bit of everything. It's continuity done well, but reader education accessibility done poorly. Yeah. There was a really cool panel, though, uh, when, when they were describing the energy panel from Bex, where she's standing in the room and she doesn't move. And then it goes over to while she's wearing an Imperial uniform invader and they're throwing one of the guards into it to test it out. And I like the way that they do that transition there in the flashback and just that one panel. It, it worked really cool. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, uh, that buddy of Dunlin, uh, you know, the one I called Judas, has basically come to Vader and is getting paid a crap ton of money. Uh, quite a bit more than 30 pieces of silver. It looks like a ton of pieces of little gold coins and such. Actually, it looks kind of like they're feeding him in chicken feed, but whatever. I think it's supposed to be coins. Um, and he, Aster, tells Vader where they can find uh, Dunlin at this point so that Dunlin can be taken out. That's when we get the background of everything going on with the hub. Here's, you know, the different steps we got to go through to get to it. Very much a, a, a scoundrels or a... Uh, Ocean's Eleven, or maybe a mission, first Mission Impossible movie Tom Cruise thing, where it's like, it's much worse than you think. And it shows all the steps you got to go through to get to the prize you're trying to get. Very much set up like that. Um, yeah. Only Dunlin is there, and is supposed to be part of this mission. Uh, Dunlin is supposed to be one who, you know, this will hurt the Empire, and it will help get the Empire out of the planet. The idea being that if they have no reason to be there because their facility is not safe anymore, things can go back to normal on the planet. But Dunlin, for his part, um, doesn't want to take part in what amounts to essentially a suicide mission and walks away from the group. Um, although he will wind up you know, still playing a role. He winds up rejoining them very quickly. Uh, but he does have a, at least a brief change of heart. But as he walks out, it turns out that men have turned on him. Basically, it looks like uh, uh, Sardoth has, has gotten some goons together, but he says, screw it, you know, I believe in what I'm fighting for. I decided long ago I'm willing to die for the cause, so okay, fine. You know, I'm going to wind up joining you guys. Um, apparently, Sardoth must want me to be part of this mission so much that he's willing to, you know, turn his guys on me and have them try to collect a bounty on me if I don't agree, so screw it. I'll agree. Um, it just seems odd essentially, that he's, I don't know, he's just, Dunlin's role in this, he, he's, a, it seems like he's a reluctant leader, put it that way. And in that sense, that gets across well. It's one of the few things we ever know about him, but at least we know he's sort of the reluctant hero here. So did you get the vibe that Sardoth hired these guys as well in your first read? The guys that hassle him, you mean? Yeah. I mean, that was how, when I first read it, I, I was under the impression that Sardoth had originally arranged for these guys to show up. But now when I'm rereading it, it's like, it's more like he, you know, the guy pulls the gun and he goes, it seems that Sardoth knows more than I. There is a bounty on my head, and the price must be large indeed for those I trust to turn against me. So on my second read, just now, it's like, oh, oh okay, so so obviously now he's seeing it as Sardoth actually does know a lot more. There is a large bounty, and that there really is no way for him to hide. He has no choice but to fight. Whereas before, I was kind of like, wow, Sardoth's so cold that he actually had those guys waiting for him. 
but like I don't know. Like then hearing you say the same thing, I was like, oh, okay. So I wasn't the only one that that well, picked up on that. It's like these are these are his men, but Sardoth has gotten to them um, to make sure that he goes along with this mission. Apparently, there's that line in there. Um, uh, whenever Vader's talking to Aster about how you know anyone will betray, it's just a question of finding the right price, essentially. Um, like everyone is for sale. Um, that gives us another flashback briefly to uh, Will and his brother Ved. And again, it's just slowly building up the story. In that case, uh, Ved has just saved Will's life from the Juggernaut. So Will drags Ved back away from it um, into safety. But Ved is still not dead, even though repeatedly it seems like he's giving his life for everyone else. Um, that Not dead, Ved. That eventually leads to uh, another scene within the cities of the city, uh, capital city of Ahakista here, where Vader and the stormtroopers come to basically take out Dunlin because he's, of course, been betrayed by Aster. Um, and Dunlin, rather than joining the fray and trying to stop Vader, he basically is hidden and watching, trying to escape, um, as Vader goes through and kills pretty much all the rebels meeting at that supposedly secret rebel base. Um, in that sense, Dunlin is essentially saving himself to find another day, but it reminds me a lot of Will Tarson here, the sense that, you know, they, they're willing to die for the cause, but in certain moments, they're willing also to let others perish because they're saving their own butts. At least that's what I got out of this. It, this scene took away a lot of the heroism that I think the story was trying, when it does mention Dunlin, to give to Dunlin. We expect a, a rebel leader who tried to save his people and liberate his planet to be this person who is very honorable and courageous. And yet here, here he is basically hiding out while everybody else gets slaughtered, not willing to stand up and say, you know, let them go. I'm here. I'm the guy that you want or anything like that. Like you would expect perhaps from someone created as a heroic character. Mm -hmm. And then there's another moment again where, where dark, uh, Sardoth is asking, uh, Darka, I was wondering, have you considered my generous offer, Darka Nil? And, Nothing. I mean, so now now we know there was an offer made in the last issue, but we don't know what that offer was. And obviously, you know, Darka said he wouldn't answer then, but they never really talk about that beyond there. And then the last scene, again, is one of those those full panels. Uh, this one isn't so great. It's just the three people there standing there, the Imperial soldier and uh, the lady in white and Will. But I, I like the fact that they're still continuing. It seems to be about two per issue. And you got to admit, it's kind of amusing that in that uh, that final sequence where he's stepping in with the sun at his back and everything like that, so they can cast shadows across his face. Uh, I find it interesting that uh, that apparently, thanks to Rasha Bex, uh, it must be the new imperial fashion these days is uh, MC Hammer pants. If you take a look <laughs> at that last image, her pants are flared oh, out like like she should be saying, "You can't touch this," and then you know shuffle her way off to the side. That brings us into part four. The mission is a go. Um, at this point, our, our Rebel buddy Dunlin is essentially running down the street. The others are making their way towards the hub. Um, Bako essentially being the one who's, you know, I don't want to die. I still have much to offer and everything um, as a way of distracting the stormtroopers while Dark and Nil can come up there and kill them and while Will can come up there and kill them. Uh, so the mission is a go. They're working their way down through these tunnels to eventually get to the hub. As for Dunlin, he's got his own part of the mission essentially where he's going to take advantage of the situation. He's seen his friends all just die, so he goes to one of his, I guess, little safe house type places with this old lady and pulls out a rocket launcher from it. Um, the idea being that he's going to help them attack the hub, even if he is not with them in the underground section. 
within the underground section, our characters run into a creature, essentially, uh, and are warned of other potential creatures down there. These are uh, this, it's a Murdoch M E R D O C that they run into, and some and another one they have to be at least a little bit afraid of. But they finally do wind up making it towards the hub. But now that means that they've got to wait. Because, yeah, they're at this access door to get into the hub, but that's the one that's got the lock. That's the one that's shielded. So it's up to Rasha Bex, as an Imperial officer, to bring down that shielding. So now it's up to Rasha to do her part of the job. We switch to see her. She's going into this huge uh, ziggurat-looking thing, pyramid-like thing, which is the hub. She gets into the security center, claiming that she's there uh, to check their security arrangements, and the guy who's there... He's like, well, I need to check this, this with my superiors, but she sort of waves him off essentially, you know, uh, it'll be noted on your report, you know, you'll get in trouble if you dare to check and question my authority, uh, only to wind up that once she finally does start, you know, figuring out what's going on with this computer system to finally shut down the energy field, um, she's caught in the act and winds up getting her butt kicked by this other Imperial officer. She's a member of the team in a sense, but she's not an effective one. Basically... Her job now is just to get her butt beat. Yeah. What's funny, though, is this scene, when it's just, you know, in the comic, has nothing to do with the cover. I mean, it's it's the same scene on the cover, but the characters do not look at all like the cover characters. And what they say doesn't make sense on the cover. Sabotage, but who would betray the Empire? Well, presumably that's Rasha Bex who's supposed to be saying that on the cover with the Imperial officer that discovers her about to beat her on the head with the blaster... But she shouldn't be the one saying sabotage, but who would betray the Empire unless at the bottom in fine print it's supposed to be, oh yeah, me. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little bizarre. That brings us into a little bit more of how the field works. They're trying to find a way to shut it down. They're waiting for Rasha to do it. At at this point, it doesn't seem like she's going to be able. Uh, Will thinks it's taking too long. It should have been down by now, so he may just throw himself into the field and kill himself. Because otherwise, you know, Ray's could just blow up his head, and it's not like Ray's going to let him live after the mission anyway. But he's both talked out of it and forced out of it um, by Lenara talking to him and Ray's talking to him and activating the little thing in his head to bring him down. Meanwhile, we have Darka, who is in the dark, uh, in another one of those scenes that's, uh, that's basically lit only where they want to give your attention to something. Um, and he winds up pulling out what is, I guess, supposed to be Lycan's lightsaber. It's a curved hilt red lightsaber like the one Lycan had back in Tales, back in Nomad. But there was never an instance we got any hint that he actually saved that lightsaber. It's certainly not in his hands as he's running out with that huge collapse. But apparently somehow he either got it or he uh, got one from somewhere else. But he pulls out this lightsaber because he's being taunted by Sardoth. We don't realize who it is at first. Because it's all Sardoth talking from off screen. He's out in the shadows. We got these word balloons telling what he's saying, but they don't point anywhere. And we realize that basically Sardoth was the apprentice, the Sith apprentice or Dark Jedi apprentice of Lycan, who is finally mentioned here. He says, uh, uh, he tells his whole backstory essentially. He says, Order 66, Chancellor Palpatine, as he then was told, told his clone troopers to wipe out the Jedi in order to stop their rebellion. Some Jedi worked with Palpatine to guarantee the success of his plan. Promises of power were made, but they were not kept. Now that's referring to Lycan and Sardoth and others. Uh, once it was over, Palpatine turned on these fallen Jedi. They ran, although Vader tracked down most of them. The rest of us were forced to live desperate, hidden lives, too fearful to ever use the Force for fear of discovery. Running a gambling club, finding myself in debt in service to a tawdry intergalactic gangster, doing his bidding like a mundane servant. Well, no more. 
I've delivered his blasted suitcase. My task is done. My pathetic task. I was more than this once. And when I recognized your lightsaber, it made me remember that. You see, it belonged to my Jedi Master many years ago, the one who first whispered to me of the dark side. His name was Lycan, and I will take what belongs to him. So we've tied this into Lycan, but unfortunately for anybody reading this story who's never read Nomad, they don't know who Lycan is. Yeah. They just know that Darka basically killed a Sith or killed a dark Jedi at some point, and here they're giving his name. If you never read Nomad, you would think this is just a side reference that connects to nothing. Um, but it, it's kind of cool that now we're seeing a ramification of his actions decades before, because it just so happens that Sarnoth apparently was the apprentice to Lycan. Apparently Lycan had been a Jedi Master, um, not just a common criminal, but a Jedi Master, who apparently had Sarnoth with him at the time. Uh, and then, of course, comes the capture of, of Lycan and all that stuff that we see in Nomad, and that left Sarnoth there to basically work for the Empire or go into hiding. I like the idea that it's not just the light side Jedi that need to hide from Vader after the Jedi Purge. It's Dark Jedi too, because if they aren't going to go along with the program, they've got to hide for fear of being killed as well, because any Force user, light or dark, is considered a threat essentially to Vader and the Empire, and he wants to bring them down. I like that connection. I wish they had explained more of it, because this seems like it's the crux of the climax here in many ways. It's Sargoth with a lightsaber versus Darko with a lightsaber. Ooh, that's going to be awesome. And yet, the backstory really isn't there. It's like, um, for example, uh, one of my Republic Forces Radio Network co-hosts um, uh, was Jerry. Okay, And Jerry, the other day, went to go see, in the theater, the 50th anniversary Doctor Who special, having never watched Doctor Who ever before in his life. Now, he may have still enjoyed it, I think he did, but there's tons of things that are more enjoyable watching that special if you know about what happened before. Uh, David Tennant's line of, you know, I don't want to go, a reference back to him regenerating into the Matt Smith version of the Doctor. Um, uh, the unit, uh, different uh, things that are in the archives at unit uh, under lock and key that turns out to be something we've previously seen in the series. There's all kinds of stuff that are nuances you can get that add depth to that story and that one, just like this one, I'm not sure that someone coming into it without that background knowledge is going to get not only nearly the same impact, they may not even be able to understand some elements of the story. Um, mm -hmm. Again, this needed background somewhere. You're giving us flashbacks for Will. Give us flashbacks, even one or two, for Darka and Lycan. Otherwise, a lot of people won't know what the hell is happening. Yeah, I, I was one. I mean, the name Lycan, I was like, ooh, I want to know more about that. But it gets back to that question. I mean, what was the question Sardath asked? He never once brings that up even. I'm like, again, I'm like, what was that? What happened in that first conversation? Unless the question was, <laughs> are you a Jedi? I mean, that he yeah. does ask that question. Um, I don't know. Just So those two are fighting, and it makes for kind of an interesting sequence, the way that's going to wind up playing out. But as we're heading towards the end of four, they're now fighting lightsaber-wise. Uh, Will has yet another flashback to his brother, Veed, who seemingly is kind of like the Doctor, because it seems like he's constantly regenerating because he's getting his butts kicked in explosions and then somehow bouncing right back. This time he goes, expecting Will to follow him, carrying a bag of explosives to throw at a juggernaut, only Will is cowardly and stays behind um, as he runs out there, as we find as we move towards uh, the end of that issue. Or sorry, as we move toward the, the, the last issue of it. Something to talk about real fast before we go uh, was the fallen Jedi aspect because I like the the fact that they use the term fallen Jedi, not dark Jedi, because I was under the assumption that Palpatine actually used dark Jedi. But 
it was a clever way of, of you could use it either way. I mean, you could pretend that these fallen Jedi were different from the dark Jedi and the dark Jedi were something that Palpatine initiated later, or these were those dark Jedi and that Vader then was what Palpatine used to wipe them all out, which would give you a whole nother round of purge stories because at this point, all the, the quote unquote regular Jedi have been purged in the first set of series. And now you get to go through and take out all the dark ones. I thought that was interesting just in potential that was there. Yeah, there's certainly a lot more potential with the whole Sardoth character than actually winds up playing out here. Again, it's sort of a, that surface-level characterization. Here he is. We never really knew much about him. Now look, oh, he's Lycan's apprentice, if you remember who the heck Lycan is. Um, but as they're fighting, and Rasha is getting the living crap beaten out of her by this other Imperial, that's when Dunlin does his part that really wasn't meant to be his part. Um, he's injured, but still is able to get uh, that rocket launcher into position and fires it on the hub, and it's that that winds up knocking out the energy field because Rasha's mission is essentially a failure. They don't know her mission was a failure. They still give credit to her, but it's Dunlin whose explosive manages to knock out the little um, power source for the, the energy shield that he was trying, uh, that the team was trying to take out. And he's caught by Vader immediately after doing so and stabbed through the chest with a blade. Only that's when we get one of our big coincidences of the story, which is it just so happens that this explosion that happened way up near the top of the ziggurat caused enough of an explosion, enough damage, that it shifted the foundations, I guess, or shook the foundations. So now there's things in the tunnels underneath where our heroes are and where Sardoth is battling Darka, where things are essentially falling apart. It's like a cave-in type of thing. And there's this big statue of a hand that finally snaps. That statue of the hand actually had been struck during right. the battle. Right. So yeah, it was it's already weak. It's being, it gets slashed at one point. There's a moment where Sardoth swings his blade, and it's kind of a weird slash, the, the direction of it, but it manages to hit Darkest lightsaber and then slash into that hand up there. And things are shaking down at this point, so it's, it's becoming unstable. It falls, and it just so happens it's about to fall on Sardoth, and instead of Sardoth just stepping out of the way, he uses the Force to grab it and put it on the ground, and it's that use of the Force that finally alerts Vader to the fact that, uh-oh, check it out, you know, we need to get into the hub because it's being attacked. And there's a Jedi here, actually. Yeah, a fallen like Jedi, but a Jedi here. That, it worked, but it's another one of those kind of very coincidental type of things. If only he had stepped to the side, it wouldn't have been like that. And it begs, it begs that question, and we get this a lot in various forms in the EU, just how far can Vader be away from someone who's using the Force and still sense that they're using the Force? It seems like there's no rhyme or reason to it so much as it's just whatever the story requires in that <laughs> yeah. case. I can that, see that. I like the way that the page plays out, though. You know, the order, sir. And Vader's like, scour the area, Sergeant, I want to. And then it goes to that panel, and then he's like, eh? Like, just the, the quick flashes, it reminded me of a TV show. That brings us to the final issue, finally, of this somewhat uneven tale. Uh, we get another flashback, yet again, that basically just repeats the flashback we saw in the previous one, uh, where Will is hiding behind a rock and his brother Ved is running towards the juggernaut with the explosives and Will isn't following them. Um, we get to the present and they've got the shield down. Now they need to get through that massive, massive door that requires the lock picking. This is now where Bako is going to have to go and open up the door, but he doesn't want to be there. He pulls a blaster on them, basically says, you know, some people just want to be left alone. Don't you get that? He doesn't want any part of this, but it's not like he's going to shoot them, it seems like, because Lenar is able to just walk over to him and take the gun right out of his shaking hand so that, you know, Bacon can finally get to work on the door. Um, this all happening, again, while 
Darka is still battling against Sardoth. He's pretty decent with the lightsaber, even though he's not a force user, which is something that was dealt with back in Nomad. And sure enough, amidst their fighting, Vader shows up, drawn by the force use of Sardoth, and we get a battle between... It's essentially a three-way battle in a sense, but Vader doesn't really care about Darka. Uh, he cares about Sardoth. That's the guy he's worried about taking out. Um, but you got all three of them there carrying different red lightsabers. When they when they bust out the lightsaber, I was I was curious as to yeah if Vader was going to see Darka is even a threat, and all you really get at that moment is just the crossing of the lightsaber. You see the one with the other two down below it, but yeah, when that when that first kicks off again, I wanted to know more. I didn't realize that they told us about Darka, which is actually nice because now I'm going to go back and reread that one because I do want to know more about that character. But yeah, you know, you just constantly you wanting to know more about these things, and you you nailed it, Nathan. When you said putting the little box in there, I've said that in past issues uh, or you know past comic issues. That we've done episodes of them that that's what they need to do they need to slip more of that kind of in there you know let us know when these are tying let us know when a character is you know on in disguise unless you don't want them to know until a certain point and then give us that reveal so they go on with the mission the stormtroopers are in the caves they attack uh, right after bako is taking care of the door but uh, he winds up taking a blaster bolt to the side of his torso and basically does the whole heroic just give me a gun and i'll shoot the stormtroopers and cover your escape while they run inside the building um, it makes sense, and it's kind of a cool way for that character to go out. It's one of the only likable characters in this story is Bako, um, but it's one of those things where it's it's kind of it's overused. It's a trope that's overused. So as cool as it is, it doesn't hit the emotional impact and didn't the first time around reading it for me because we've only met Bako a little bit and we've seen that type of situation so many times before. It's like it doesn't really. Uh, have the same impact as it might have the first hundred times you saw a similar scenario in a movie, in a book, in a comic, or whatever it might be. That, that it really, it only serves that one panel there. You know, he goes, right, just me versus the Empire. Then they don't stand a chance. And it's got, again, one of those solid panels with the stormtroopers coming up over the rock with him on the other side, you know, in front of the door, just blasting away. They've managed to do, I think, two of these each issue, and I, I love the fact that they've kept to that theme because, you know, yeah, yeah, it's a wasted plot point, one that we've seen before, but it serves the art at least in this case. That brings us back to the, to the uh, lightsaber fight. Basically, Vader is going after Sardoth. Uh, Dark Anil gets in a lucky shot. He swings the lightsaber, and it, and it basically glances off of Vader's helmet, leaving a little smoking part. Uh, Vader force pushes him off to the side, and we will find that eventually... Uh, Vader will kill Sardoth. Um, this great sequence in which he says, you know, your end is near. Why? Why hunt us down? We helped your emperor. We could have served him. I could have been your ally. If you are worthy of being my ally, you would not be at my mercy. And Vader kills him. Darka, for his part, sees this and runs away. Uh, Vader uses the force to grab the lightsaber that was dropped by the now-dead Sardoth. And it took me a while to figure out what the heck was happening there. In the, the, the instance where we see the duel and Darka nicks Vader's helmet, Vader doesn't just force push him. He force pushes a piece of debris that has like a circular part on it into Darka. So after killing Sardoth and we see, you know, the, the shot of Darka seeing him being killed, we don't really see what happens to Darka where he runs away. We just see Vader look down and he sees that piece of rock or whatever it was or piece of statue and Darka's not present. It took a long time for me to realize what in the heck they were trying to show with that image. They're trying to show that Darka has just escaped because, see, he's not there by the rock that was knocked down with him. But the Thanks. image is so unclear, I'm not sure most people reading it would get that. I didn't either. I mean, I, I knew, well, he fled, but I didn't get that that rock was part of the statue from the other scene. Thank you. <laughs> 
And for what it's worth, that's the last we see of Dark Anil. He pretty much just vanishes at this point. That's sad right there, the fact that, that yeah, he just disappears. Because when, when this gets over, I was wanting to know, you know, it, was it going to do like Dark Times? Were they planning on coming back more often? Granted, this was one of those that, that fell by the wayside of the series, but... Man, you know, I, I want to know more. And I love the fact that the only way Dark O'Neil was able to even get Vader was the fact that Vader turned his back on him because he didn't even consider him a threat at all. I was like, ouch, talk about dismissed. And then, of course, we have the mission that's supposed to be the focus point, and that is now Will and Lenara being the only ones left to carry out the mission going into the hub. Lenara's got that same suitcase all over again. She pops it open, and out comes a little uh, spider droid type thing that's going to link into... Uh, the system, it's uh, got a cloaking device embedded into it so it won't be picked up by the scanners and such, so it can just sort of uh, fix itself somewhere within the mainframe area and transmit all kinds of information from the hub's mainframe all the way across the galaxy to Rays. Will, for his part, sick of Rays, um, doesn't want to give Rays all that information. He wants it to get to the Alliance, so he asks about the possibility of changing the target. So it's like Will is finally trying to defy Rays, but he gets a you know, pain in the head for it. For her part, basically, Lenara, uh, she she must have feelings for him or something, though we never really get a chance to find out what those are because we never get any background or further characterization of Lenara. But she basically tells Ray's because he can hear through uh, uh, Will's implant and see what all's going on. She basically says, you know, I know you can hear me. Stop hurting him or you'll get nothing. Um, you know, maybe I'll turn off the cloaking device right now and let the Empire follow its signal right back to you. Uh, basically using a threat against Rays to finally save Will from possibly having his head explode at that moment. But they don't get a chance to really do much of anything because the Empire is right there at the door. Uh, they bust in and one of them shoots Lenara in the shoulder, uh, knocking her down. And Will, for his part, isn't really willing, or at least it doesn't seem like he's willing, to essentially give in to Rays at this point, which kicks off the last of the flashbacks, um, where we see the shot that we got a couple of times now of the brother Ved running towards a juggernaut with the bag of explosives and Will hiding behind the rock. The brother gets about halfway there, looks back and realizes Will's not with him, and before he can do anything, stormtroopers shoot and kill him. And we find that Will saying, uh, the young Will, his head buried in his hands, saying, you know, I'm too scared, Ved, I'm sorry, I can't do it. So we know that, that Will has let down someone he loved before out of an act of self-preservation and cowardice. And there's that sense of, okay, well, is that what we're going to wind up seeing here? And essentially, that will be what we get. Will, by not acting, he betrays his brother. And by betraying his brother, the stormtroopers, the Empire, they roll in, and thus he betrayed himself. Getting back to that whole betrayal. I mean, that's, that's the overlying theme here that they're really trying to beat into us by now. And at this point, that's where Vader enters the mainframe room, and Ray's is like, you know, I'm sick of this crap, I own you, without me you're nothing, etc., etc. Um, he attempts to blow up the explosive device inside Will's head, only Vader is there, and Vader has sensed it somehow, and basically used the Force to shut it off temporarily. He could always turn it back on, but he shut it off temporarily in order to interrogate Will and find out exactly why they're there, uh, who are they working with, are they plotting against the Emperor, etc., etc., um, until Will basically sells out Ray's. I uh, says, you know, hey, you know, this bomb in my head, can you deactivate it permanently? And if he can use the Force to crush that mechanism and deactivate it permanently, then Will essentially, who's not really part of the Rebellion at this point anymore, not working with them, not working for Ray's, he basically gives in. You know, let her go, 
destroy the little thing and I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you how raids co-ops Imperial Intel and hijacks cargo. I'll tell you the whereabouts of every active Alliance spy that I can remember. So he's betraying the Rebellion too. I'll tell you all about the Rebellion spy network. Just please let her go, this woman that apparently I have feelings for, even though that was never shown throughout the entire rest of the comic. Uh, basically, he betrays the Rebels and Rays all at once. Um, and she, Lenara makes an interesting comment. She says, you know, Rays... May have been wrong about a lot of things, Will, but he certainly had you nailed. Congratulations, you survived. Now, how many others will die because of it? Ray's read him correctly. I mean, Will is a coward. Will is someone who may seem brave at times, but when it comes to his butt versus others, this is not a guy who's selfless. This is not a guy who is willing to give his life for a cause. Instead, he's the guy who's willing to let others die in his place as long as he still survives. Um, that, I thought, was an interesting twist on the story. I expected Will to wind up doing kind of what he did. I want to send the information to the Rebellion instead of to Raze and just come out being the hero of all this. And instead we get this rather dark ending where he comes out alive, but it's only by betraying others. And we wind up finding almost immediately uh, that the Empire heads for Raze's business uh, place of operations and starts blowing up everything, attacking it with Star Destroyers and the like. Basically... Um, wiping out Ray's operations on that planet. Uh, we end with the somewhat somber note of the last page where Rasha is, I mean, she has survived. The guy that was attacking her is now dead. And that comes from when the explosion happened thanks to Dunlin's missile. But other than that, we don't know anything else about what happens to Rasha, um, at least at this point in the story. We see a stormtrooper over the dead body of uh, Bako, and we wind up seeing um, Dark Anil essentially hiding in a closet saying, you know, we're not finished, Tarson, not by a long shot. Now, if only I ever got a comic to actually have me, you know, play out that revenge, that would have been nice. Instead, my story will stop here, and that sucks. Yeah. I think that's a subtext of what he's saying. Um, and the the one really good thing that we do see, uh, as far as like a, the, a positive part of the ending, other than just Will surviving to fight another day, which is somewhat negative because of how he did it, um, he look, you catch him looking down at the suitcase, and the little spider droid transmitter thing has already gotten released and is now connected to the Imperial mainframe, and presumably transmitting that information to the Rebellion, as opposed to to Rays. So, yeah, but how? That, 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 it was weird, because they talked about changing the signal for the Rebellion, but as far as I read, they never really had time to actually do it. Or, and that that was where I get was 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 she was Tar Taria uh, the Lenara. chick was she, yeah, Tanar was she actually part of the rebellion? Because I'm starting to get that feeling that maybe she was a sleeper agent as well. Yeah, I really couldn't say. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you're right. They say it, but then we don't know if she ever actually does it because it doesn't seem like there's the opportunity. But then again, if Dark and Neil can be in this story with Lycan's lightsaber after it supposedly got buried in all that rubble that killed Lycan, anything is possible. Um, well, yeah, I was wondering if they were going to do like like a later mission that, OK, we've got it set up. The signal's going to, to raise us. We need to set up, you know, some kind of transmitter to bounce it from there to a secret location or something. Because, yeah, they didn't say one way or the other. And I, I was I was immediately thinking, you know, they're going to do something else with us down the road. But unfortunately, you know, we don't get much closer to that. That for me was the biggest issue of the series all the way around, though. I wanted to know the more before and after. I'd forgotten about the fact that Dark and Neil showed up in the Nomad story. So that there's an upside for me because I wasn't 
planning on that. I thought they were all characters brought in. So, hey, I got that. I can go back and read. I'll go back and read the Empire one with Bo Sheck. Get a little bit of background there. But going forward, that it's that's the suck right there because there is nothing else. We don't know when they're going to come back and do it. The upside about the EU, as long as there's story potentials out there, there are potentials for more stories. But unfortunately, we got to get someone in the powers up to decide to make an okay and go forward with it. Yeah, it's just one of those things that it's there, there's a lot of dropped balls here. There's a lot of potential for these characters to come back someday. I think when Rebellion got cut short early, that pretty much nixed any chance of that happening. They were also talking about taking the there's a pilot character, I believe it was in Tales 21, the other story that wasn't mine or Nomad Chapter One. They're going to bring that character back later in this series. They even mention it in the letters page. Once they get to that point, they could try to bring him in, but it never comes to pass. Um, but I will say that it reads better. If you read it all at once, and despite the few instances where we're like, what? It's it's a story that's it suffers from the lack of background information on the characters. It suffers from the lack of heavy development of characters other than Will. But it's not a bad story. It's a it's a fun read. It's a quick little read. It's a read to check out, especially if you're interested in this era, but you're really tired of constantly reading about nothing but the big three. Then it's a decent little tale. And for my money. What actually winds up sort of sealing this as one that I would say is is still one to check out even though the series is over, it's that ending. The fact that Will doesn't end up as the regular hero, there's that betrayal there, which is the coda back to the scene with Anakin and such that we didn't need back in the first issue. And this presumably, because of Will's situation now, was designed to get him into a position where he would take a role in Vector a couple of storylines from now. Um, it's just... You know, it's okay. It's okay. It's not great. It's not bad. It's just kind of there. It's certainly not, as I would say on From the Star Wars Library, an essential read. But it's not one to avoid necessarily either. And it's definitely not a satisfactory conclusion. <laughs> now, uh, real quick, we're going to run down the covers. Um, Nathan, for me, I would say I, I really enjoyed uh, the covers for 9, 8, and 10. 9 being the one where it actually has nothing to do with the scene going down inside with the uh, male Imperial soldier about to club the female Imperial soldier over the back of the head. I, I just, you know, it's a style that that's gritty. But I like it. I like that the, the way the colors contrast and stuff. Uh, number eight, that's the one that we see on the cover of the trade paperback with Vader and the troops. And he's like, grind the city to dust. Show them the true power of the Empire. Uh, and then number ten is the last one. We have the uh, three-way battle between Vader and Sardoth and Dark Anil. Uh, and we've got Sardoth going, Raise a blade, raising a blade against us? You must be insane. You're not even a real Jedi. And of course, Dark Anil responds back, doesn't matter. You won't be the first Sith I've destroyed. Um, the two I didn't really care for are the other two being number seven and number six, uh, six it's, it's Raz. I really don't care for Raz's character and him being on there. Just, I don't know. It bothers me. It just doesn't really work. And you know, Will's character doesn't really look like Will. He looks more like Ved in that, uh, same with the other one. It just, it doesn't look right. Um, the only one on the, on number seven that I really care for is just Baco's character. I mean, besides that, it looks like Baco and Padme are running from somebody. Yeah. These covers by Ryan Sook, I mean, they're all right. They, they, like you said, one of them doesn't match, or as I mentioned earlier also, one of them doesn't match. I would say running through here, um, issue number six, its cover, not a big fan of that. I mean, it shows Will Tarson with all of his, you, know, you see a lot of his tattoo. You see Rays on the cover, so at least it's giving you a sense of what's going on. But again, the artwork is kind of meh overall on that one. Um, issue number seven, uh, I would expect that that was Padme, but apparently it's not. Uh, on that cover, it's actually Lainara on the cover. It's decent enough, 
but it begs the question of um, what's up with the lightsaber? Because you've got on that cover, you've got in the in the foreground, you've got Lenara. Right behind her and to the side, much shorter, is Bako. Behind both of them is Will with a blaster held up. And behind them, there's this amorphous black blob. And from within that blob is two hands holding a red lightsaber. Is that supposed to be Darka? If so, he's a very dark uh, character because he's missing somewhere in the blackness there. It's just a pair of disembodied hands with a lightsaber in it. Yeah, it's like the blackness is like a side shot of of a Jedi with their cowl up. And then, yeah, like, like... Like he's stepping out through that darkness. Like, yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't even realize that that was, was hands not attached to anybody. I, I must have always assumed that that was part of Will's hand or something. I don't know how I missed that. Nope, that's something else. Issue number eight, uh, particularly good cover. Then again, it's not by the same guy. This is Luke Ross with colorist Will Glass, the guy whose colors make up uh, uh, the coloration of this entire miniseries here, this entire story arc. Um, issue number nine. I dig, again, it doesn't fit the story at all, but it's well-drawn the way you get the, uh, the Imperial woman who's supposed to be Rasha about to be beat on the head. Um, that scene actually looks a lot cooler on the cover than it did inside the issue itself at all. And then the issue number 10 is another of these things where you can miss something. Uh, I reread this about two days ago to make sure that I had, it was all fresh in my memory before we started talking about it on the show. And I'll tell you then... And probably at no point since this first came out did I realize, looking at the cover, that Vader's even on it. Because Vader's not talking. He's standing between Sardoth and Darka, and unless you really look in, he looks like he's just part of the background. It's that whole, we're going to wash out everything with the black colors. But I'll tell you what gets me about these covers overall, and it's not just this series. It's another thing um, that I would say is sort of a strength versus weakness in Star Wars comics. Um, they have a tendency to have pretty dynamic, cool-looking covers, even if they don't necessarily always reflect what's inside the issue. However, what drives me crazy is that they got to a point where they decided, after all these years of cool covers that were all just straight-up artwork and titles, now we're going to have taglines. Now we're going to have characters speaking as if this is the old Marvel Comics series or something. The choice is yours, Tarson. Betray your friends or I detonate the bomb in your skull. Uh, a mission gone awry. A Jedi, a Jedi, yeah, jelly. A Jedi killer awakened. Grind the city to dust. Show them the true power of the dark side. Sabotage who would betray the Empire. Raising a blade against us? You must be insane. You're not even a real Jedi. Doesn't matter. You won't be the first Sith I destroyed. As if Sardoth is apparently a Sith, unless he's talking to Vader, who is not who just spoke to him. Um, I really, really dislike this style of cover where they've got dialogue between characters on the cover. Because it's usually misleading, and they look much more, I would say, professional, stylish, cool. If they just have everything in that story that you're going to put on the cover captured in an image instead mm-hmm. of being a scene with dialogue that doesn't exist within the story. Um, but that's something I've never liked, not with Star Wars, not with any other yeah. comics. The idea of having dialogue on the cover, I mean, and it's always that sort of bad movie serial type of thing. That, that like you can read the cover of each of these and end it with dun, dun, dun. And that would make perfect sense with the feel they're trying to give you with the covers. Take the freaking words off of it. Just give us a cool scene and let the story in the comic carry us along. We don't really need that unless, again, this is probably another one of these accessibility things. There, it's just on there to give a new reader a chance to know what the heck might be inside it if they're looking at it on a newsstand or flipping through it at a comic shop. I can see that as an, sort of free advertising. Just alter the way your covers look so they're able to draw more eyes and perhaps get more interest from people who haven't opened it up yet. But at the same time, I think it it takes away some of the the stylishness 
some of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, majesty, perhaps, of some mm-hmm. of the previous Star Wars comic covers that we've seen. I mean, imagine Rebellion number eight with Vader there with the Stormtroopers beside him and the AT-AT behind him and the TIE Fighters in the air without him saying anything. Yeah. So much more dynamic. Same thing with the one about sabotage, but who would betray the Empire? Take out those words and you just got an Imperial officer about to, to bang another, her- uh, another Imperial officer's head with the back of a blaster rifle? That would have been cool. Why do you need dialogue on a cover? Well, and I think there's a word for this style because, and I don't remember if I read it in the back of one of the comics or if it was uh, from John Jackson Miller's website, but they'd mentioned that they were going back to this style for a while because they started doing it in the Old Republic, the KOTOR series. Then it spread across all of them for a while where they were all doing that with the dialogue. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a definite. They were doing a throwback. It was intentional, and it was going back to an older style. Hence, why most of them look kind of more gritty on the outside. But yeah, I too was not a fan of all uh, at all of that style. Um, I, I like I like the ones that that have more going on that don't have you know the words. You could put like a quick little subtitle on the bottom or something like that. I'm okay with that. But I want the action to you know kind of mimic it. I like the most like when you get a book that the cover actually is a scene that's going to happen. Like, that's always great, you know, when you get something like that. But it gets back to that whole aspect of don't judge a book by its cover. And when it comes to comics, you really got to remember that because, yeah, you can get something on the outside like that number nine, you know, that is completely out of out of sequence. I mean, yeah, it's it's a scene from the comic, but not at all the way it's supposed to be going down. Yeah, I always think of the way that I mean, if you're going to be buying a comic book, then more than likely what's going to draw you to it, if you it's a you're just a fan of that series, and you're just going to pick it up anyway. In that case, the comic means nothing to you. If you are someone who may be new to it, that's sort of like your your trailer. It's your one quick way to get the attention of a potential reader is how cool your cover looks and what's in it. Um, and yeah, in this case, they're doing very much more of sort of a, a trailer type of thing where they've got a scene being played out, whether it's realistic or not. And I'll be honest with you, looking at these covers... Um, I really don't have as much of an issue with number seven, a mission gone awry, a Jedi killer awakened. Granted, the art looks a little bit off, but that type of text, not as big a deal. So the narrator saying something over what looks like a cool, just dynamic cover, as opposed to doing actual dialogue between characters, because the dialogue between characters on these covers, A, doesn't necessarily match what's inside, but B, it also usually feels very forced. No pun intended. You know, they've got to be able to convey a lot of stuff in that cover art, like raising your blade against us, you must be insane. You're not even a real Jedi. Doesn't matter. You won't be the first Sith I've destroyed. They've already mentioned both of those things that he's not a real Jedi and that, you know, he's killed a dark Jedi before, like in, in the story. But someone who's just picking up the comic and wondering whether this would be a good one to read should be checking out the dialogue to get a sense of what the story might be. Um, but it's, it's very heavy handed. Um, if that dialogue had appeared inside the comic, I would have been thinking, wow, that was some very cheesy, ham-fisted writing. But it's on the cover to draw people in. It's just, it's just not my particular style of cover that I'm into. And I also miss the days, I must say, I miss the days when the story arcs of ongoing Star Wars comic series had the title of their story arc on the cover somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the first Star Wars ongoing that became Republic. Here we've got Rebellion. If you were going to be picking this up just looking at the cover, there's nothing to tell you this ties into another issue until you open it up to the first page, the interior cover, where it says Part 5. So, I don't know. This It's not as bad as I remembered it being, but at the same time, this is just a series that it's very easily forgotten. And unfortunately, this is kind of where Rebellion goes from here. They had a very strong arc with My Brother, My Enemy, 
But it's like after that, they really didn't know what they wanted to do with anything. So you get this that leaves out the major characters, gives us a whole new troop. Plays out all right, but the art's kind of yeah. But then after this, we're going to get, what, small victories, which in the art is going to be an issue, and it's kind of an, an unnecessary story. And then, oh, hey, here's Vector, and it will wind up being one of the two absolute most dull, almost pointless parts of the Vector crossover that we will see. Um, it's no wonder Rebellion died after the Vector segment ended, um, yeah. because there just isn't a lot of there there. Yeah, Vector was the death knell for the series. I mean, it's almost like, you know, they knew Vector was coming, but beyond that, they were told to just kind of put everything on hold, and by the time they got to Vector, it was like, oh, yeah, you're done, guys. And as you may recall, we have contests going at this point to win various prizes. Uh, right now, we have one going on, for instance, to win a copy of Mercy Kill, but you have to get your entries in for that one by December 27th, the last Friday in December. Um, easy to remember because it's also our last episode for 2013. Uh, in that case, send us an email with uh, X-Wing Mercy Kill or just Mercy Kill in the subject line. In the body of it, give us your mailing address and send it to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. However, we also have another contest here ready to launch off with this episode. Uh, in this case, you'll be able to enter uh, it's, it'll be up to one week. This is, this is a week later from when we started the other contest. This will go up to one week after the deadline for the previous one. So until January 3rd, day before my wife's birthday, until January 3rd, 2014, which gives you a few weeks here, uh, you can enter to win a copy of, in this case, my novel Greater Good. It's my sci-fi time travel novel type of thing. Um, it's the uh, the official Published version through Grail Quest Books has a cool little afterword behind it talking about the making of the story and where it all came from and that sort of thing. And whoever wins this one, I will uh, sign it, personalize it if they like, and that sort of thing, uh, and then send it on out. Same thing as last time as far as entering. You enter via email. Email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. In this case, you're still going to put your mailing address in the body of the message, but then now you want to change your subject line. Don't call it Mercy Kill. That'll enter you into the other one. For this one... Call it Greater Good 1. Make sure you put the 1 on it because we are going to have another copy, at least at least one, of Greater Good later to give away as well. And we want to make sure that your entries for each of those two contests, in case they overlap at all time-wise, uh, will be distinct. So I know you're not you know, sending in stuff for the same thing over again. You're actually wanting to get into a different one for a different copy of Greater Good later on. Uh, definitely something to check out. Send us that email if you're interested. Just as simple as typing an address into an email. Well, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you once again for hanging out with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page, at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show on Facebook. We love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com And of course, don't forget, 
Uh, we also have a new Facebook page up for Rebels Roundtable, the st show about Star Wars Rebels that we're going to be starting in the near future here uh, with some of the Republic Force Radio Network guys and Mark. Um, that one can be found at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable. It can also be found on Twitter at rebelsround, all as one word. Um, hopefully, you'll be checking that out in the uh, near future here. Can't go wrong there. And, of course, on an unrelated note, be sure to check out the Amazon shop that my wife and I run. It's amazon.com slash shops slash Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O collectibles, all as one word. Some stuff there from my comic collection and book collection, hers and whatnot. Uh, kind of an eclectic group of things there. And if you are someone who is uh, keeping up with the updates about the whole uh, medical situation here um, with uh, my wife and the medical bills and all that good stuff, or bad stuff as the case may be, um, once again, thanks to everybody who has helped out out there uh, donating uh, a little or a lot just to help defray some of that cost. We're hoping that that'll be something to be able to be wrapped up by the time we get into maybe February or so. If you are still interested in donating to help out, uh, however, you can do so via PayPal. It is Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com. For more information and to follow the ongoing medical story as it happens, just check out our Facebook page. About once a week or once every two weeks, I'm posting updates on there about where things stand. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles you can explore. You can explore the EU or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this is Ben, Mark, and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll ever see more stories with Darkanil and Rasha Bex. Ooh, I like those odds. Wait, I want those odds? Oh, man. How are we going to rig those odds?